Today we turn the page to chapter 9, and as you're turning there, just a few contextual reminders. First, this book is written to a church that is facing persecution for faith in Jesus. And so the temptation is to run back to some other system that, by which they, they hope that they could know the presence of God. And so they want to run back to the Old Covenant. And the book is proving that that would be foolish, that, that Jesus is the only way by which God's people can have access to God. So from chapter 4 to chapter 10, which we're in chapter 9, that's in that, that big section, the author is making the big point that Jesus is a better priest of, of a better covenant with a better hope built on better promises because he's a better priest who offers a better sacrifice. That's, that's the, the big idea that is captured from chapter 4 through chapter 10. And so if you come on some Sundays and you're like, well, I feel like I've heard that before. Well, that's because you have, all right? We're going to work our way through the, through the book just as it's been written, and we're going to encounter some very similar ideas along the way. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 this morning, the author's going to take us back to the tabernacle, to its design and to the sacrificial system that happened therein in order to lay the foundation that's necessary for us to understand that the sacrifice of Jesus is superior to the sacrifices of the Old Covenant because the only sacrifice that could give us access to, the, to God that we were made to enjoy is that of Jesus Christ. So, as we dive back into Hebrews 9, 1-10, through 10, let's keep in mind that these verses are describing for us the limitations and the obstacles to direct access in the presence of God that existed under the Old Covenant. All right? So here now, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1-10. through 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat but of these things we cannot now speak in detail now when these things have been so prepared the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship but into the second only the high priest enters once a year not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Would you pray with me? God, I ask this morning that you would just loosen my lips to speak your truth. God, that you would 
uh, work through my heart and through my mind in such a way that that your word would be clearly communicated in spirit of God, since you have authored these words, that you would use these words to bring conviction or encouragement or both uh, to the hearts of your church, God, as we as we lean into your word together and expect to hear from you today. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning, I want you to see three things out of this text. Uh, to appreciate, again, the, the broader context here is, is appreciating our need for the superior sacrifice of Jesus. And that's really going to happen from the beginning of chapter 9 all the way down through chapter 10, verse 18. So to appreciate our need for the superior sacrifice of Jesus, we see in this text, and we'll see some, some additional things in the weeks to come, but this morning we see that we must see that entering God's presence must be done on God's terms. You don't just approach God any way you want. You approach God in the way that God intends and that God designs. Secondly, we must understand that drawing near to God is a holy privilege which requires a blood sacrifice and the forgiveness of all of our sins, even our sins of ignorance. Thirdly, we must be right with God from the inside out. The first thing I want you to see this morning is, is really found in verses 1 through 5, and it's that we must see that entering God's presence must be done on God's terms. In chapter 8, the author compares the first and the second covenants, or the old and the new covenant. And in verses 1 through 5, the author is demonstrating for us his familiarity with the first covenant, including that it, it had an earthly tabernacle with extremely limited access into God's presence. The first covenant came with regulations. Do you see that word in verse 1? Rules. Governing divine worship and even the design and the feature of the tabernacle sanctuary itself. And what's interesting here is he says the divine worship, meaning the priestly ministry in the tabernacle, and then he describes them in reverse order. So he begins with the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was certainly beautiful, it was a lot of gold, it was ornate, but it was nevertheless earthly, meaning it was located on earth and it was made of man-made materials. It was not the heavenly sanctuary, rather it was temporary and it participated in the imperfections of the present world. It's only a shadowy outline of the true heavenly eternal realities where God dwells forever in the heavens. But despite its temporary and earthly nature, the, dis, the precision in the requirements for the construction of the tabernacle reveal to us that communion with God only happens on God's terms. Now, just a little sidebar this morning, that hasn't changed. The way we commune with God is through Christ, but in the New Testament, we likewise have some rules, some regulations about the New Testament church and how it's governed and how it's structured. And those things are likewise important for us, right? So it, God, God, by sending Jesus, didn't suddenly become slack in his desire for us to commune with him. He's still God, and we still come to God as he intends. So, back to the tabernacle. The regulations of the tabernacle prove that drawing near to God is a big deal. It's an amazing, special, 
not to be taken for granted kind of thing. And I think in the, the New Testament church, in the, in the New Covenant, sometimes we forget how amazing it is, how rare it is that we would be given the privilege of communing with the Holy God. I, I don't know how to illustrate this morning. I, I, I thought about you know, a variety of times that I've, I've had those moments of getting special access to something. You know, you go to the the museum at the Smithsonian, and you want to see the Hope Diamond. But what is the Hope Diamond behind? A big old glass case. And you can't, you can't get beyond it to touch it because they don't want you to touch it. They don't want your grubby paws all over the, the Hope Diamond. I, I thought about times when I was working at Virginia Tech, which for many of you that wouldn't be a special privilege, but for me it was. I got to go to the president's house, and then I got a big pass, and I got to go to the president's suite and watch the game, and it was, it was a privilege uh, maybe it's your favorite artist, uh, your favorite musician. Maybe you got backstage passes one day and you got to, to meet your, your favorite artist. And it was just a, a great thing. I remember in the year 2000, I believe it was, maybe 99, when George Bush on his first presidential race came to Roanoke. He visited Roanoke, Virginia, and he stayed at the Hotel Roanoke. And I got to lead his motorcade downtown and watch those Texas Rangers, because he was still governor at the time of Texas, protecting him. And I remember the restricted access into the presence of George W. Bush. And I remember, because I apparently didn't wreck the vehicle, and I got his bags to his hotel room okay, I got to shake his hand and get a photograph with him, and it was the coolest thing. I, I got to meet who eventually became the President of the United States. Those, those opportunities are nothing, nothing compared to the high and holy privilege of being welcomed into the presence of God and not being consumed by His glory. The tabernacle is teaching us that entering the presence of God and not being consumed by His glory is the ultimate privilege. When the author here describes the tabernacle, he makes no mention of the outer courtyard where people would gather or the altar for sacrifices, but instead he focuses on the holy place and the most holy place. These two inner chambers, if you will, of the sanctuary, because his focus for us this morning is on our primary need. And the primary need, as I said last week, of every human being is to know the nearness of God, to be able to draw near to God. O'Brien says it this way, the tabernacle consisted of the court with an outer and inner compartment. The outer or first court was the holy place, mentioned in verse 2, and it contained the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread which sat upon the table. The lampstand is mentioned in Exodus 25 and 37. You'll see the references here. It was that lampstand which had six branches and then a center branch with a flower-shaped lamp holder at the, the top of each lampstand, signifying the light of God. The table, again you see the references there, held the sacred bread, 12 loaves of bread, Exodus 25:30 tells us, which were changed every Sabbath day, that God would provide from His presence nourishment for the tribes of Israel, and He would do so every Sabbath. Jesus is the fulfillment of these symbols. It's, it's no accident that Jesus comes and in John 8.12 says He's the light of the world. It's no accident that He also says that I am 
the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. The bread doesn't need to be changed every Sabbath anymore because the one who is Sabbath comes and offers himself as the bread of life so that we could commune with God and know his presence daily and be illumined in our minds and our hearts consistently. Jesus fulfills the symbolism of the tabernacle. In verse 3, the author moves behind the second veil to the holy or the, excuse me, to the most holy place. This is the veil that was torn when Jesus was crucified. Signifying that the way of access into the holiest of holies is opened up, not through a curtain, not through a priest who goes in once per year, but through the blood of Jesus. The separation of the holy place and the most holy place is described in Exodus chapter 26, verse 33. It says, you shall hang up the veil under the clasps and you shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. In verse 4, he mentions elements that are found behind that veil and in the holy of holies, the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, the golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod, and the tablets, meaning the, the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. Taken together, these symbols, these were symbols of God's promises, His acts of deliverance, and His faithfulness, and of His holiness. Now, we could spend time diving into each of those symbols, but that's not really the author's point. His point is to get to the mercy seat in verse 5. The mercy seat is the climax of the description of these various furnishings that are in the sanctuary of the tabernacle, the the place where God would be merciful to His people. On the top of the ark, there was a lid or a covering called the mercy seat. And on it were two golden cherubim, winged creatures made of gold, facing one another with their wings extended above the mercy seat and guarding the presence of God. The place where God would descend and commune with Moses, with the high priest, with His people do you remember what guarded the way back to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were cast out? It was a cherub. This, the, signif the significance of this is that God's glorious presence, His holy presence, is not something that we can casually walk into. It's not something you just stumble into. It's something that is guarded, that is sacred, that is protected, and that we cannot presumptively enter. The author doesn't tell us in detail about the various furnishings because his goal was to get us to the mercy seat. For us to understand, to enter the presence of God requires that God be merciful to us. This is the seat where God manifested his presence and from which he spoke with Moses. It's the place that on the annual day of atonement, God would accept the blood sacrifices of the high priest on behalf of himself and the people. Getting to this place, getting into the presence of God, took a succession of movements, and getting there could only happen if we went there on God's terms. If a high priest just walked in on any old day, he would die. If he did not go in the way that God prescribed, he would die. He would be consumed. And so what we're learning here in verses 1 through 5 is God is very serious about His presence. And to commune with God is a great, great 
privilege, which is our second point. We've got to understand that drawing near to God is a holy privilege, which requires a blood sacrifice and the forgiveness of all of our sins. In verses 6 and 7, the author illustrates the high and holy privilege of drawing near to God's presence by contrasting the regular daily activities of all the priests in verse 6 in the outer courtyard versus the rare once-a-year activity of the high priest in verse 7. So verses 6 and 7 are illustrating a point of the privilege of getting into the presence of God by this this contrast that is set up in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, we are reminded that the priests continually enter the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. Their priestly service is what is meant by those words, divine worship. It was in the outer room that they changed the bread of presence every Sabbath day in anticipation of the bread of life who would come in fulfillment of the promise of its symbolism. It was there that they offered sacrifices twice each day. It was there that they trimmed the lamps every day and kept the lamps burning. It was there that they regularly offered incense. The daily work of sacrificing to cover their own sins and the sins of God's people was ongoing. It was continual. Yet none of it brought them behind the second veil into the most holy place, to the place where God himself gloriously descended among his people. If any priest entered the most holy place of God's presence, they would die, unless it was the high priest on the day of atonement. And here's a, here's a quick aside. If all of this daily regular activity that was commanded by God could be done, but it could not qualify them to enter into God's presence, then who are we to think that we can qualify ourselves to commune with God by what we do? We've done nothing compared to what these priests did every day, trimming the lamps, preparing the bread, doing the incense. I mean, they were all about doing God's work, and yet they still could not get into God's presence based on their work. It required him to be merciful to him on the day, to them on the day of atonement. God, help us to understand that, that our presence here today is, is not automatically deserving of God's presence. We can have God's presence not by what we do, but by what Jesus Christ has done and the access that he's opened up to us through his blood. It's a profound and it is a profound and miraculous privilege that we have through Jesus to draw near to God our Father. The only exception to the rule that priests could not go into the Holy of Holies happened on the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement. We read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. On that day, the high priest could enter the most holy place. He could sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifices on the mercy seat. And he could do so and not be consumed. Under the Old Covenant, access to a cleansing and hopeful, glorious awareness of God's presence was restricted to one high priest serving in one place on one day of the year, every year. 
Who got to go near to the presence of God? One high priest, one day a year, and he had to do it every single year. The author is showing us, by the way, that the blood was not merely sprinkled, which is the Old Testament word that is used, but offered. And the word offer means to be presented as a, as a gift or even as a payment to God to satisfy His righteous wrath against our sin. The Day of Atonement is about satisfying the wrath of God. And it is signifying to us by the fact that it keeps coming around every year that God's wrath is going to take more than the blood of a goat or of a bull to be satisfied. It's going to take human blood for the wrath of God to be finally and fully satisfied. Notice that verse 7 says this blood was offered for the sins committed in ignorance. Now remember, there were offerings, there were sacrifices happening every day in the tabernacle. For sin, for guilt offerings, people knew they're sinners, they come and they sacrifice. But on this day, verse 7 tells us that the blood was offered for sins committed in ignorance. Do you know what that means? That means we are more sinful than we realize. Theologians categorize sin in three ways. Sins of commission, breaking God's law. Sins of omission, not doing God's law. And sins of ignorance. Sins we don't even realize we're committing. And we do all three, right? We've, we've, we've not done what we're supposed to do. <laughs> We've done what we're not supposed to do, and we've done things and thought things and felt things that we don't even realize that's in there. And on the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice for the sins committed in ignorance. Even the sins that we don't realize we're committing deserve God's wrath and our death. We know the Day of Atonement did not provide this final and full forgiveness of sins because the whole process has to keep going year after year after year. O'Brien says this, The fact that fresh blood had to be shed and a new entry made into the most holy place year by year by year shows that this sacrificial blood was ultimately not effective. All the details... The washings of the priest, the incense that he would carry in, the sacrifices and the blood that was sprinkled, all of that fell short of providing the full and final forgiveness of God's people. And if all of that could not secure everlasting life lived in God's presence, God's presence, therefore, is clearly a gift that we've got to receive and that we cannot earn or deserve. Our only hope the tabernacle is teaching us that our only hope has to be better than the hope of the tabernacle. It's got to be a hope that comes through a better high priest and a better sacrifice who offers not the blood of a bull or a goat, but his own blood, a blood that would grant us access to God forever because he can cleanse and he can mature and he can perfect us from the inside out. He can change us at our core, which is what was needed which is the message of verses 8 through 10. The temple could not cleanse us from the inside out. But for more than just one guy, one day a year, 
to enter the presence of God and then still not quite to be there because he had to burn some incense to sort of cloud the presence of God lest he be consumed. For us to know the glorious, holy presence of God, we've got to be right with God from the inside out. As we see in verses 8 through 10, the Holy Spirit is teaching us something significant through the tabernacle and its limited access to the Holy of Holies. As long as meeting all these regulations are necessary for one person to commune with God on one day a year, God's presence is not freely available. The earthly tabernacle does not offer the way in to the holy and heavenly presence of God for all of God's people. The access that we need to the God who satisfies the longing of every human heart has got to come through a new and better covenant. As long as the tabernacle stands in the heads and the hearts of his hearers, the people were going to miss out on the real access to God that they could have through Christ, who ends the limited access to the presence of God of the tabernacle and opens up access to God through his own sacrifice. As a quick aside, do you see this in verse 8? This is, we could preach an entire sermon just on the first few words of verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Now, this is not the main point of the message, but aren't you glad that the author of Scripture recognizes that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I'm not preaching to you my opinion. I'm not preaching to you my suggestion. I'm preaching this morning what the Holy Spirit of God inspired to be written down for the people of God down through the ages until Christ returns. We are pondering and plumbing the very Word of God. He spoke to us so that we could know Him, and that's amazing. The significance of the tabernacle then for the present time is not something that He made up out of thin air. It is something the Holy Spirit has given to us to understand. And in verse 9, He tells us that the limitations of the sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle... Show us that we needed a better sacrifice. The gifts and sacrifices offered in the tabernacle could not make. Do you see that? In other words, they were powerless to perfect the conscience of the worship of the worshiper. What is the conscience? The conscience is something that every human being has. It's the inward place where we become aware of the huge chasm between the righteousness of God and the righteousness of our lives. That there's this God who is holy and perfect and and there's no wrong and there's no wickedness in Him whatsoever and then there's me. And the distance between me and this God is vast. This gap leaves us guilty. It leaves us accused before God and prevents us from knowing His presence. The tabernacle teaches us this important truth Communion with God requires a clean conscience. It requires that we be complete on the inside. Now that word perfect in verse 9, you say, what does it mean I'm going to have a perfect conscience? Well, in this context, it means a complete conscience. That we are aware that I'm a sinner and that God is holy, but that gap, that guilt that I feel has been removed Not through the sacrifices in the tabernacle, but through the blood of Jesus. Being clean on the outside 
through the ceremonial laws about food and drink and washings, they showed us that we need to be pure in order to enter the presence of God, but unfortunately, they could not purify our consciences. They couldn't take away our guilt. They could not remove the gap between the goodness of God and the dirtiness of our lives. We needed something more. The temple teaches us we must be cleansed at more than the surface or the appearance level of our lives. I'm convinced that every Sunday some come to North Roanoke Baptist Church and they walk in and they've got a plastic smile on their face and they sit in the pew and they listen to the sermon and they do all the things that they're supposed to do and they leave feeling just as dirty and guilty as when they came because those outward things, as important as they are, are nothing if you've not been changed at the root of your life. That will only happen if you surrender your will to Christ and let Him clean you from the inside out. You say, I'm not really all that bad. Really? You remember Job? A man who's called righteous? A man who worshiped God to the best of his ability? We, we go for 42 chapters in Job and you're like, what is, what is really wrong with Job? Is, is Job really a man who's less than God? And then he hears God directly. And this is what Job says in response. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Even the relatively righteous Job, when he sees God, he sees and encounters the presence of God, he is overwhelmed by this infinite gap and this infinite distance between himself and God. Which means to dwell with God, our conscience must be cured. And that is possible today because verse 10, the time of reformation has come. And it has come with Jesus. Reformation means the new covenant overtaking the old covenant. Reformation has come through Christ. The precision, the excellence that is required to know the presence of God in our lives has not been fulfilled by our presence here today. It has not been fulfilled because we checked off all the items on our offering envelope. Do you remember the offering envelopes with check boxes? You know, you could check every single box on your offering envelope and still be far from God. All those boxes could be checked, but you could have a heart that's not been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. But Jesus has come, and He has answered the prayer of Psalm 51-2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Knowing the nearness of God is a most high and holy privilege that requires that our hearts be cleansed from all sin. Sins that we've committed Sins that we've omitted, something God required of us, and even sins of ignorance. So this morning, if your conscience still accuses you, run to Jesus and know the overwhelming love of God for you that can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood it speaks a better word. God, it speaks a word not of condemnation and of guilt, but of salvation and reconciliation to the presence of God, our Father. God, we 
We confess this morning that so often we take for granted the privilege of knowing you. God, thank you for the lesson of the tabernacle that to draw near to you is a great privilege. There's no privilege greater than being welcomed into your presence and knowing your love rather than your wrath. God, we thank you that Jesus makes that possible. Jesus, we thank you for coming in spirit of God. We thank you for inspiring this text and for your presence here this morning. God, if there's even one who is here but stands condemned before you, let today be the day that they trust in Christ and find their sins, all of them, forgiven as far as east is from west. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.